but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We have something very exciting today. This is kind of a surprise episode for you all, and it is something that we have never done. We have had players on the show before, little cute little 10-15 minute segments, but we've never had a former player sit down with us. Today, the legend, Zena Garrison, sat down with us for an extended chat about her career, about being an African-American woman in tennis, about today's game, and just took us through some of the, the highlights and some of the insights she's gained in her illustrious career on court and off court. We've been hoping to get this interview for a while, but the timing really couldn't have been any better in doing it now because today, when you're, well, it's yesterday for us now, but today when this episode is released, will be the 30th anniversary to the day of Lady Z making the Wimbledon final in 1990. Beating Monica Seles, snapping a 36-match win streak in the quarterfinals, beating number one Steffi Graf in the semifinals, Steffi who had reached the previous 13 Grand Slam finals, and then playing Martina Navratilova in the final. We talk about Althea Gibson. Zena had a personal relationship with her. One of the stories that you've probably heard a lot of recently is that Althea Gibson was in the locker room at Wimbledon right before that, that final in 1990. Talking about champagne, maybe adding a little pressure, but it's uh, amazing to see these two generations of pioneering players end up in the same place at that one moment. Zena is unfiltered. She tells you what she's thinking. She says on the show that, you know, I don't always talk often, but when I do... You know, it's important. <laughs> Aside from her Wimbledon final, which we've heard a lot about recently, Zena Garrison is an Olympic gold medalist in doubles with Pam Shriver in the 1988 Seoul Games. She is the bronze medalist in singles at those same games. She made the quarterfinals or better at a major 15 times. She won three Grand Slam mixed doubles titles, two at Wimbledon, one at Australia. 14-time WTA titleist. She is one half of the first ever all-black WTA final in 1986 at the Eckerd Open. And off the court, she was the USA team captain at the 2008 Olympics. She was a Fed Cup coach for a number of years and the founder of the Zena Garrison Academy, which has taught literally tens of thousands of children in Houston to play tennis. The work that Zena has done over the decades with her academy is so phenomenal. And as you can imagine, these are very uncertain times for all kinds of businesses, let alone not-for-profits. And if you are able to please consider donating to Zena's academy, you can go to zenagarrison.org and make a donation to, to help the kids in Houston continue to get such fabulous instruction. Free of charge, yes. which is important to mention. Perhaps as a, a preamble to this episode or a prologue, you can listen to our previous episode on Zena Garrison, which was entitled Wiglet Like Zena. 
we do ask Zena how the wiggle got started in this interview. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of supplemental listening. But for now, here's our chat with Zena, and we hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with us. No, no, no problem. I'm trying to stay out of this Houston corona. We don't have, it's been really bad here. So. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how's everything going there? Yeah, we um, have had major spikes, so it's, it's going to be interesting. So. Yeah, so you mostly staying inside, kind of minding your business? Yeah, um, and I have really bad allergies too, so they had the African dust here last week, so I wasn't trying to be in that. Again, thanks for doing this. Just a little bit of a preamble as to how we were kind of hoping to do it. We're just going to run through a few things of your career and just get your reaction to it, possibly. Okay. Uh, tying into some of the stuff that we may have talked about on the previous show that we did as well. Well, you guys seem like you know me so well. I don't even have to do this. <laughs> now we want to hear it from you. Uh, you've been getting so much press this last month because of the 30th anniversary of your Wimbledon final. Did this catch you off guard? Yeah, it did really catch me off guard for for two reasons. First of all, that it was just been 30 years. Like I, you know, it just blew my mind that it's been that long. Um, and then the other thing is that so many people had been talking about, you know, they remembered when it was all happening. And, um, you know, one of my friends even called and she's like, you're kind of twitting on Twitter. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, uh, and it's so funny because my phone had been going off, but I didn't, you know, it's never really happened. So I didn't really know what was going on. So it was pretty cool. So is this the first time then that you're just minding your own business and you're just brought back into tennis because of your career, because of social media? Yeah, it's that one, and it's one guy from England that, uh, Chris Goldsman, he always puts stats on there. And so, you know, sometimes he'll, you know, bring, he makes me, I tell him all the time, he keeps me relevant, but he comes <laughs> up with these stats out of nowhere. And so this one just kind of took off. So well, I think because they don't have one with him right now, it's, you know, it's, it's in people's mind because this is the time. So yeah, it's a good time to sort of relearn and celebrate tennis history, right? Yeah, which is what Wimbledon's all about is the history of Wimbledon, and it's why it's it's always been one of my favorite tournaments because of the history and the intimacy that you have you have there. Before we get into kind of recapping your career, is there anything that you feel journalists? always used to get wrong about you or anything you wanted to kind of clear up? Yeah, it kind of started, um, well, just like in the last couple of months, like I've been kind of like going through and looking at some stuff like on myself, which I never do, kind of back articles. And it kind of started with you guys. Mm. And one thing that I noticed all the time is people kept saying that I choked. (laughs) And, you know, my thing is, in order to choke, you have to get to a certain point. So, like, how can you be, like, like a huge choker? And it's like, you know, and you guys brought that out, too. Like, you didn't really know all the other stuff that I was going into. But that that is one thing that, you know, always boggled my mind because most of those sports writers back then never hit a tennis ball, never threw a football, never played basketball, but then they're calling somebody a choker. A lot of that hasn't changed. <laughs> No, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Was that something that you were aware of in the, t- in the moment when it was happening? 
Like say you'd no. leave a match with a lead. Did people talk like that to you? No, because I never, I mean, I never had like drastic leads, you know, may, I do know that I would go up and down because my coach talked, talked about it all the time. And for me, I just pretty much, sometimes I tried the things at the wrong time or, you know, made the wrong decision, but I never thought that, you know, I just always looked at the word as choking that in order to be a choker, you have to be at a point to choke. <laughs> so yeah. that's how I always looked at it. <laughs> I always think of it as being very unkind as well, that a lot of sport reporting is just so unkind to folks who are putting everything out there and they just casually throw around words like choke like that. Yeah, well, like you said, it's, um, it is like, I mean, and like I was saying, most of them never even played a sport before, so you don't even understand how, what choking could possibly be. <laughs> You've got this great origin story with how you started tennis. When we were doing the research to get the first episode started, we kept seeing like two or three different ways the story was told. So can you clear up for us once and for all how you got into tennis that day in uh, McGregor Park with John Wilkerson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my brother actually had a girlfriend that played tennis in high school. And that was kind of like our introduction to tennis. But my brother also was a baseball player. And at McGregor Park, they have the tennis courts. And then in the back of the courts, there are, um, it's a baseball field. And so my brother, I wanted to tag along with my brother. So I actually went to the courts. And that's why I made John Wilkerson, who became my um, coach. And so my brother's playing baseball. I'm sitting on the bench. So John came over and asked me, what do, what do, um, you know, what am I doing? You know, am I just using God's air? And I was a pretty cocky, <laughs> I was a pretty cocky kid. And I was like, yeah. And so he asked me if I wanted to hit. And so I tried to hit the first one over the fence and I was like, all excited. He's like, no, you got to hit it in these light little white lines. So I choked up on the racket and started keeping it over. Well, then I quit for, a couple, well, I, I, I start coming to his like Thursday program and an everyday program. And then I quit because uh, I got a brand new bike. And then Bill Cosby came out. <laughs> and that's where out of 100 kids, Bill Cosby picked me to hit with. Oh. And I kept playing ever since. How long do you think it took for you to start to really love tennis or, or figure out that you are actually really good at it? Once I started playing on a regular basis, I love the fact of the competition part of it. But the per part I love more than anything is being able to, I was always this kid that was able to look across the net and analyze like my opponent, like really quick, like that person can't hit a good backhand or that mm -hmm. person can't move to the right. Like I always had that ability um, after just hitting a couple of balls. And so I love the fact of being out there by myself, but I also love playing with someone, but being out there by myself and controlling my own uh, destiny in the sport and just working hard, that part was like really cool to me. One of the things that you're in the tennis history books for is being part of the first ever all black WTA final in 1986 played against Laurie McNeil. Yeah. <laughs> no, you two came up together in Houston Coming up through the ranks, did you ever talk to each other or think that, well, this is bound to happen for us, that this was something that could happen? Well, it's funny because, you know, Lori and I, yeah, we grew up and we're like only a month apart in age and everything. Lori's father was a professional football player. 
but then they from San Diego, but then they moved to Houston. So um, we became really good friends, like real quick, because nobody would let us hit. We were the youngest one, so we'd have to play on the backboard. And you know, and then finally one day they were like, "Please let us hit, let us hit." And then they were like, "Wow, you guys got good." <laughs> so it just kind of happened, but it, it was you know. Uh, we did have a lot of matches where we would sit there and we would be on the court and we were like, oh, you know, one day we're going to play, you know, in Wimbledon or one day, you know, like Arthur Ashe. So we did do those things. But not until I was like 14 that we really, for me, felt like I had a shot because Andrea Yeager, I played in the 14 Nationals. Mm -hmm. And... um, she was getting ready to turn pro and I went like four and five or five and five or something. And her dad told me I'll never be anything. And that just drove me. Whoa. Whoa. Wait, rewind. I said I had a, <laughs> said I had a horrible backhand and I'll never be anything. You know, you'll never make it to the bro. I'm like, whatever. And it just, I kept that in my ear all the time. <laughs> her father told you that? Yeah. Wow. A kid. At that time, her dad was like kind of real, everybody knew he was a little off. So. I was like, whatever. <laughs> well, I think you proved him wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to fast forward to 1988. I know you've spoken about the Olympics being the best time of your life, the best time of your career, uh, winning the gold with Pam Shriver. Is there anything about the Olympic experience as an athlete that the rest of us just wouldn't get? What's really unique about that? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, especially us, we were coming from being in an individual sport to, you know, being in an Olympic, um, the Olympic place where everybody was and village and everything. And I think for me, just everybody has an instant, like, um, they gravitate you because they know that the work that each other has put in. So it's a natural sorority and fraternity. And it's really one of those is very hard to, to describe unless you're in it. Mm. And it's like immediately when you meet someone, even from another country, it's like you have that instant brotherly and sisterly love for each other. Something that has been tickling me a lot lately is doing watching all your videos with, with game set chat yesterday on a tennis channel you seem to get a kick out of your record against martina navratilova most folks <laughs> probably think that you know it's something that would you know piss somebody off but you're you're laughing about it all the time when you play somebody that much and you got i mean literally i would come home and, you know, and make the, the semis or the finals and I have to play Martina. Semis or finals, I have to play Martina. And I would come home and be coming through the airport and the the bell captains and stuff would say, Zena, keep trying. You're going to get it one day. Keep trying, you know. That dang Martina. Like, literally, I heard that, like, so many times. And even one of the – when I finally beat her, and I think maybe you guys might have heard that story before – it's like when I finally beat her, I was coming out of the out of a um, hotel in uh, New York. <laughs> so this guy's like, Gina, I mean, he's like, give me money, give me money, whatever. And he's like on the street, homeless guy. And then the guy says, Zena, way to go. You finally beat Martina. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like he reads the newspaper, obviously. So. 
And then he went right back to give me money, give me money. So, yeah, I guess the kick out of it was, like, she was always a little bit stronger than me. She was always faster than me. She always, you know, she was Martina Navitalova. I mean, so I would always, and Martina said one time before, everybody has people that they play well against. Mm -hmm. And their games just match up. And I think I was just one of those for her. <laughs> <laughs> you had, I guess you could say, the misfortune of playing so many greats in the history of tennis. <laughs> Coming up against Chrissy and Martina. But I was a choker. But I was a choker. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you have to play all these people. And say you get to 1988, 1989, you're, you know, folks are writing about you like, oh, Zena's finally getting it together. And then you have this other generation coming again, playing a whole different style of tennis. <laughs> was that maddening to feel like the game was just coming at you all the time with all these great players? No, it really didn't. It just um, for me, you know, I always tried to do the best that I could be. And, you know, I am a, I'm a firm believer that, you know, there's it's different times for different people, different things. And, you know, I was a competitor, so it didn't matter who I played. And I said this to one of my friends one time is, like, I'm pretty sure what every person, every top person that I played, I at least beat them one time. So with Martina. So, I mean, I do have that record. You can't take that away from me. So right. that is true. And you put yourself in the position to play her so many times, right? So it means you were getting to late rounds and big tournaments and beating great players to get there yeah martina i probably could have been you know closer to two or three in the world if i didn't have to run like I, you know i didn't have that much trouble with chrissy i like playing her but martina was just always i'm always on her side of the draw mm. you know we talked about this incident on the episode we did about you from the 1989 french open where, you know, Monica Sellis started <laughs> passing out flowers to the crowd, and then she turned to you and tried to give you a flower, and you politely declined. Well, I'm glad you said politely, because <laughs> I was, like, pissed off. <laughs> yeah, so I want to, for once and for all, get your take on that whole episode. Yeah, well, first of all, I was really mad at, at, um, at Nick Voluntary, um, because he's the one that brought her the flowers. And so... And there was this little, the little holding room thing that we were at right before going on the court. Uh, he did it in front of me and me being the older player, like I knew what he was doing and, you know, not taking anything away from Monica, but she's much younger. And I knew that this was like an upstage kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that is what pissed me off more than anything. Oh, that's so interesting because, you know, watching back the video, we couldn't tell if you both had walked on with the flowers or, you know, where they came from. She got them literally right before she came out. Wow. Because it seems like maybe it's something the tournament did, you know? I don't, I don't think most people would imagine that Nick did that. Yeah. No. In 1989, you beat Chris Everett in her last career match. When we spoke to you on the phone after we did the original episode, you relayed this story to us that you couldn't quite understand why folks were so upset with you after that match. And then you, you were able to understand that, that folks were starting to, to view you as the villain because of it. Yeah, finally, and it happened from one of my god kids um, asked me to come to their school. 
And when I got there, the lady was just like, you know, I hated you. You know, she was like, serious. Like, I hated you. You'd be severed, you know. And so it all started to kind of come into play. We started thinking about it. Then it's like the matches I played before and you would play well. People weren't clapping for me. But you must remember, these were people that grew up idolizing Chris Everett and, you know, to beat her and then to walk, you know, one of my hardest times for me is when I walked into the press room after that match and, you know, it's like, how do you feel to be a villain? And I was like, what? Like, you know, and so it's like now coming back 30 years and thinking about it, there was so many key words or, or, or words that, I didn't get when I was younger that were key words of undertone. You know, I'm not going to say racism, but very close, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and villain is a word that they, that's, that's used. Did you feel like you were able to, to kind of function better as a player by, by not realizing that, you know, by not totally, totally grasping that this might've been racially biased or. I don't think. I don't think it would have bothered me one way or the other. You must remember I grew up in the South. Mm. So um, for me, you know, our coach taught me and Lori and the other kids. I mean, we were always well aware that we were black kids growing up in an all white sport and Mm. certain things we could do and certain things we couldn't do. And that we always had to be, we have always had to be, you know, 10 times better, you know, it didn't matter. So for me, you know, stepping outside of Texas, sometimes people would say, oh, you know, don't worry, we're not like, you know, down in Texas or whatever. And I'm like, you always got to be on guard because mm-hmm. people come from all over. So, Listen, we do not think that you get nearly enough credit for what you did at that 1990 Wimbledon. And we're seeing it now with the 30th anniversary. People say, oh, Zena Garrison making the the Wimbledon final, what a great achievement, but they don't always talk about the fact that you beat Monica Sellers in the quarterfinal, who was coming off a 36-match win streak, and then beating Steffi, who had made the last 13 slam finals, winning nine of them. Like those, that was the the pinnacle of tennis at the time that you just took down back to back. I was listening to, um, something was put on Twitter today, I think it was today or last night, and so it was a little clip it of me playing Steffi. And so I was listening to the commentary. And I don't know if it was Chris or I can't, I couldn't pick up who the voice was. And then one of the things that kept, they kept saying was, not the fact that I was beating her, they kept saying, well, Steffi's not playing well. Her, something happened with her dad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what, and I'm like, what? I'm like, so it's like all these little subtle things and then I've listened to some other commentaries and it's so funny. It's just like when you listen to it now, like, you know, now I understand why some people were so protective of me and what I knew and what I didn't know. Um, and I had a lot of people that were very protect, like don't read the newspaper, don't talk, you know, they, they, they formed a bubble around me mm-hmm. and now I know why. <laughs> We are of the opinion that folks wrote about you very disrespectfully back then. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way, but given that context, did that achievement of beating those two to make the final give you as much satisfaction as we think it would? 
Well, the satisfaction for me, to be honest, in that particular moment was I I literally had some shots in, in matches previously. One lost to Mary Jo Fernandez, and I probably could have gotten to the Australian Open, had a forehand in the middle of the court. And for me, that same forehand that I had some previous matches that I ended up losing. And so for me, I had a sports therapist, and I had that exact same forehand playing Monica Sellis, and then I nailed it, and I didn't look back. So for me, that was the achievement of the work that I put in. So I didn't really worry about anything else. I remember that forehand too. <laughs> I love that match. I love that match. <laughs> you know, we have, we've read a lot recently about your not having a clothing sponsorship all the way up to the 1990 <laughs> Wimbledon final. Like the, the moment you made the final, you get a sponsorship finally. Um, how else did your life change? after after that moment well it's it's really funny because you know just even like a recent like you said like that is like that boggles people's mind that i did not have one and so um but i remember i had a contract when i came in and it was with pony for three years because i was the number one junior in the world and then my coach we were in new york and i remember him showing me an article and it says I lost my deal because I wasn't blue-eyed. I wasn't um, blonde and blue-eyed. And so I lost the deal. So I was always taught to just keep going. So for me, you know, when Martina was like, hey, you want to wear my clothes at, the, at uh, Wimbledon stuff? I was like, oh, okay, because I don't have any, you know. So I just tried not to think about it because if you focus on it too much, it's just too too much negative, and I wouldn't have been mm. able to perform. What were some of the, the kits that you were wearing leading up to that, though? Because I read somewhere that you, you had kind of like an informal agreement with a, a clothing reta retailer in California, and you also had some really nice kits in the 80s. You know, there was, um, I think it was you talking about, it was a lady that kind of gave me some clothes, but I never really had, no one ever paid me. But a lot of stuff, I would go in and buy it out of pro shops, you know? So, yeah. Shifting gears a little bit now, with everything that's going on in, in the U.S. with uh, Black Lives Matter, we wonder if this has given you some, some time to revisit your career and what it was like for you as a Black woman on the WTA in the 80s and 90s. And do you view your career or stuff that may have happened to you any differently? Um, of course, I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I've started to look back and started to look into articles and look at stuff and, you know, but for me more than anything, it, and it might sound really crazy, is there's some things that happen to me, like people kind of blow you off, oh no, that didn't really happen, or oh, you whatever, it just verifies for me that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> mm. uh, that, you know, you're really going through some stuff, but because now people can't, no matter how they want to, they can't say that those things didn't happen. So I've had some good situations where people have asked me, you know, hey, you know, did, did such and such really happen to you? And, you know, what can we do to solve it? Because my thing is, I'm not interested in talking about the past like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, where can we go now? You know, even when I had the lawsuit with the USTA, my whole thing was about, you know, it, you know, 
it was about getting be, having the young blacks uh professional blacks like Venus and Serena like just be treated equally <laughs> and you know so it was a discrimination lawsuit and it's like a lot of people blackball me for that when I had all these people talking about it you know or saying their stories because every black person or every person of color in tennis they have a story <laughs> literally every person even if you play in community tennis or you play in junior tennis or you there is a story <laughs> and so for me it just kind of validates you know two years that i kind of went through some depression because I just felt like, you know, here I am fighting for something, but then nobody wants to step out because everybody was so afraid. Yeah, over the past few months, it seemed like a lot of African-American players finally feel safe and comfortable to share some of those stories. Can you compare this moment to being a famous athlete in the 80s and 90s? You know, people weren't really talking about this stuff openly at that time. Is that right? No, <laughs> and you know, and it's funny because I, I, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, been in his presence and all of that. So I was watching the last dance and all of that, you know, and I was just thinking about how people, especially our race, you know, the black culture or other people, everybody's getting down because he didn't speak out or whatever, but we weren't allowed to speak out like that. <laughs> If you do, you get blackball. I mean, and and that was the, that's the difference. And I think these sometimes I feel well not now because I think the young ones, they the young young ones, those Gen Zs, you know, the twenty somethings, they they're getting it. Is like they have the phone, they have instant, they can instant tweet tweet about something or Instagram or something. Their voices are instant. So they have something to combat. They don't have someone telling the story of how they perceive that uh, they want it to be told. These kids are fearless too. Yeah, like they. I'm they loving to it. Create their own story, right? I'm loving it. You know, as creative as creative as I am, I would have loved to have been in this era. Mm. One of the things that I find needs to be a big point of change in tennis right now is having more minority voices talking and talking about uncovering the sport. <laughs> <laughs> is that agreement? <laughs> I love, look, I want Chanda to keep her job. So we're not going to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Chanda's doing an amazing job. She's doing an excellent job. And so when we started Game Chat Chat, that was the first thing I said to her. I want you to keep your job so I don't have a job. I can be as open as I need to be. <laughs> so, you know. know. But when, when does she sleep? I know. She she's, a, so much. she's a workaholic. She's a workaholic. But, um, you know, I know that it's been talked about. But, you know, I think the first and the biggest thing is, is the tennis world truly ready to change? And, yeah, I said it. Mm -hmm. are they truly ready to change because you know first of all they, they they will consistently say they don't have a problem and a lot of times you say you don't have a problem because they've had such minorities great champions as minorities but when you have to look at it is what is the filtered what is the part the fundamental part in the bottom like the juniors and like what's that's looking like who's coming up 
you know, it's still a problem for minority athletes to get money to play consistently to play tournaments. <laughs> it's still a very expensive sport. So systematically, you know, that's the big word everybody's using. It's really no different from anything else in other sports. It's, all the sports are not top heavy when it comes to minorities. Something I found really disappointing, though, was we saw Venus and Serena coming. Tennis could have been prepared for them to have, you know, black people in the commentary booth to be able to to make sense of their story, to be able to to translate their story to the viewers and the listeners in a way that wasn't what happened, you know? Well... To to your point, I mean, I did some commentary work, but then I was told my voice was not right, you know. Um, so, okay. So, but the thing is, you're absolutely right. But to put someone in that situation, which I'm a silent opinionator, you can't tell me what to say. <laughs> I'm not one of those, I'm not going to be a token just because you want me to be a token. So... That's always, you know, but Zena doesn't say too much, but when she does, so, but I grew up under a lot of amazing people in my life that were speaking out, so I didn't know anything else, so you bring up a very valid point, it's getting better, and you know, we're glad we have Chanda there, James does it sometimes every once in a while. You're doing it with Game Set Chat? <laughs> We need a deal. <laughs> so we yes, you do. Chan is an excellent businesswoman. Yeah, she's like, okay, so you know, we got to get this moving. I'm like, okay, how do we get it moving? We got to get a bigger platform. But yeah, so like I said, I'm hopeful that there would be better change in the USTA, but it's not, it's just like every other sports organization got to really want to change and you got to see that there's change needs to be there. You had a, a relationship with Althea Gibson. Today mm -hmm. was actually the anniversary of her 1957 Wimbledon win. Yeah. 63 years ago. That's crazy. Crazy. Older we than me. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to ask you a few questions about her because one of the, the tragedies of tennis history is that a lot of Althea Gibson is just lost to history. It's only in the last decade or so that folks have been starting to pay attention to her again. I know the USTA, uh, the USTA did the statue, mm -hmm. uh, but then we don't really know that much about her personally. Is there anything that you can tell us about Althea that folks may not know? Well, Althea was, um, she was very bitter for one thing because she just kind of felt that she, you know, she wasn't treated the same, but she was a very elegant woman. Um, you know, when, when Venus and Serena first came out, they were like, you know, well, they're, they, they do all these different things. They, you know, are, are into movies and fashion and all that. Althea Gibson was into, she was a musician. She was a golfer. You know, she modeled. She did a lot of different things way before them. The thing that was most impressive about Althea is when you first met her, she had this very, like, eloquent voice, and she, you know, spoke the English language, language very eloquently, and, you know, everything was about, you got to be 10 times, you know, better than everybody else, and you got to, you know, it was just, 
she was just, and she was tall like Venus in her stature when she walked into the room. But she ended up in a one bedroom apartment and, you know, with nothing. <laughs> I heard, you know, it took a lot to even get someone to send her over to Wimbledon when I made it to the finals. It's like she was never given her due, you know, um, for which was a little bit different for Arthur. He's a male. Uh, he was a black male. And, you know, he became part of the he became part of the boys, you know, mm -hmm. but as a black woman, that's a whole nother thing. What was it like? Maybe this is an obvious question, but what was it like for you watching her fade away in the in the public's mind eye, not even getting any recognition at all toward the end of her life and struggling very, so much? It was very tough for me because I, I, you know, I always respected, you know, what she did before us, you know. I, I didn't really, I saw tapes of her, but didn't really get a chance to watch her. I heard more about her from Billie Jean King. And like Billie Jean King, you know, she's broken so many barriers, but you know, truth be told, Billy is the reason why the statue got at the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. You know, Billy for 20 years kept pounding and pounding and never gave up. And one of her best friend, Fran Gray, who just died last year, that, you know, as soon as she got the statue, she dies a couple of months later. But it's just the, the thing about it, you know, like with Billy she understood and knew how important Althea was to the game. And I remember when me and Billy went to Althea's house and just listening to them have stories, you know, and they're talking and I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, I'm sitting in front of Althea Gibson and Billie Jean King. Like, I've, I've just had an opportunity to, to really be in some really cool spots at that particular time. And that was one of them. Sort of on a lighter note, we want to move back to the actual game. Um, and, you know, we titled our episode about you, Wiggle It Like Xena. <laughs> you know, that that caught my attention more than anything, <laughs> let me just say. <laughs> I hope you didn't find it disrespectful because it is no, no, a, no. a unique part of your game, right, and your look. How did that wiggle start? It started because my, um, my return to serve was sucking at the time. <laughs> and so, so that's a true story. Um, and I was, I think it was at Amelia Islands and they just could not, I was not like catching the ball early enough. And both of my coaches at the time, John Wilkerson and Willis Thomas was like, okay, you got to do something. And one of them just suggested, you know, put your hand, like just kind of showed me like stick your hand out there. And so this is where you want to try to catch the ball. And then I just put both of them out there and then it's like, okay, move your feet. And I started moving my feet and I just, kept doing it with the interesting part about it is I never knew what it looked like I just looked like moving my feet <laughs> and I would call home and my sisters are like you weren't wiggling you weren't moving your feet we just turned the tv off because we knew it's not going to be a good day so <laughs> it became one of those like if she's moving her feet we got a good day if she's not moving her feet you know, it's, it's all over so, so but, your, your wiggle was the precursor to Serena's business bun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when, when you know something, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> you played some of the, the, as I said before, the greats of the game. And you also said that a lot of tennis is about matchups. 
you were a good matchup for Martina and not so much for you for her, <laughs> right? <laughs> but outside of Martina, uh, of the players like Celis, Graf, Everett, Arancha, Gabby, Manlikova, which were the, the really tough ones for you to play? Forget about Arancha was, was a little difficult because she gave me like no power. And then she, she was just as quick as me. And then sometimes she frustrated me because she would throw up her finger like way before the person called the ball out. And then they go, oh, yeah, out. And so it's like, it's like, so I, she was a little more difficult. But then there was this tennis player, Raffaello Reggie, like mm -hmm. I always play well against, always. <laughs> like I could be down a set and about to lose. And it's just like, I never thought I could lose to her. And so I remember when she made it to the finals of Wimbledon, she said, and I interviewed her and she walked in there and she saw me, she goes, finally, finally, I knew when you got out of there that I could do something in tennis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were coming up, you had an all-court game, you could serve in volley, you could really, you know, do everything. How do you feel the game has evolved since you've retired? Um... All power hitting, but this new generation, they play, they're starting to play an all-around all court game. And um, they're starting to come to the net a little bit more. You know, will it ever be serving volley? No, I don't think so. They hit way too hard. But I do think that you'll start seeing more players come to the net. And it's very interesting because when we started this whole quarantine stuff, one of the things I noticed is – one thing you can do by yourself is find a wall and you can volley against the wall, which, you know, uh, Federer ended up doing the challenge. So I would tease some of my friends in tennis and I was like, oh, we got a shot. Maybe when they come back, they'll come to the net a little bit more. So, you know, but I just think like Coco and one of my favorite ones to watch is Katie McNally. You know, I'm just, I'm looking forward to them because they played, all an all-court game so the next question was going to be who do you enjoy watching these days I guess that kind of answers it yeah it's so funny because like I don't really follow anybody you know like a players you know it's like and I saw her play a couple of times and so Kathy Rinaldi a USTA um head women's coach and she was here in Houston and I said Kathy I'm following Katie. I have to meet her. Like, you know, just let me say hi to her. She's like, you're following somebody? I was like, I just love, I love her energy. But what I didn't know about her is that her mom actually played. And so that explains why I'm so enamored about her because she, I feel like she knows the game mm -hmm. and she knows the court, so... You know, we have talked a bit about the Zena Garrison Academy and what you all have been doing for the past you know, few decades. What's, uh, what's on the agenda at the moment? I have no idea. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm just saying that. I don't know because we haven't had been, you can only have a certain amount of kids on the court. You know, my whole thing with the foundation is about numbers with kids on the court. That's how I raise money. Um, I've been trying to figure it out. I've been trying to keep it open um, for when we do come back and trying to figure out what's next that I can add into it to keep it going until some sense of normalcy. Um, it's a day-to-day -day thing I'm trying to figure out. Mm. If folks are listening out there and they want to contribute to 
the Zena Garrison Academy? How can they do that? ZenaGarrison.org, and we have a donation button. And please, um, we will figure out something. Um, please help us keep our doors open. One final question for you. Mm -hmm. I always wonder about folks who played in eras from far, far, far back. <laughs> and not, then, not that, no, not that far back, but <laughs> old people. <laughs> you know, where the game has, you know, changed a lot since they played. Uh, the Mary Carrillo calls it big babe, big babe tennis took over in the mid to late 90s. I want to know if you look at the game today or since you retired and think that if you started playing tennis, say, when Coco or Katie did now, that your game would be able to work or you'd be able to adjust to the technology, adjust to a different kind of play? Would you be a successful tennis player regardless of the era that you played in? You know, it's, it's, that's an interesting question because everybody always, I've been asked that question before and, and a lot of people say, well, your game wouldn't live up to it. Well, I would say I would <laughs> because my work ethics and I was always adapting to whatever I need to do to possibly win. But the biggest thing is I've always been a mental player, which I never got credit for. But, you know, every time I went on the court, I had a strategic, I was strategic in how I was going to play and how I was going to try to win. So I had the mental and the physical part of it. So what, what brings on the great thing about all champions being able to adapt in any situation. So I think I could have done that. Um, and you have the mental and the physical. So do you think that you could have the courts are still, the court's still the same, the rackets are <laughs> just improved. So, you know, and the mental, mental comes with being able to go beyond and above uh, whatever you need to do to stay in it. Do you think that if it called for that, you'd have played a totally different style of tennis as well and been okay doing that? Well, I was actually a retriever in the beginning anyway. So I would have probably just improved my, my baseline game a little bit more. But I was always a, a, a counter puncher. I had, to, I had to kind of be forced into coming to the net. Most people think I was a natural player to come to the net, and that's just not my personality. Like Lori, when we came up, John had to make her stay in the backcourt to learn. She always loved being at the net. She has a more daredevil, daredevil attitude than I have. I'm a little bit more reserved and I'm trying to figure it out. So that's the great thing about tennis is, you know, when, you're, when you start getting into coaching, you can kind of, the way people are off the court, you can kind of mold their games to possibly be on the court under pressure. Zena, thank you so much for joining us. You'll never know how much this was such a treat for us. No, thank you guys and keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. 